0: So it turns out that body fat is a living thinking organ that communicates with other parts of the body.
1: Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success. And I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers if you are ready to be do have and give more this podcast is for you my guest today is michael moss author of hooked food free will and how the food giants exploit our addiction michael is also author of the number one new york times bestseller salt sugar fat how the food giants hooked us in this interview we talk about addiction what it is what is an eating disorder when does something become a dependency. We talk about something Michael calls the go brain and the stop brain. We talk about fat. We talk about how our eating has changed over the last 40 years in particular. And of course, the host of lifestyle diseases. Michael was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting in 2010. He's been a finalist for the prize two other times. He's a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal, and he joined the New York Times as a journalist in 2000. He's an occasional guest on shows like CBS This Morning, Dr. Oz, CNN, and even Jon Stewart, The Daily Show. You can learn more about Michael and his work at mossbooks.us. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Michael Moss. Michael, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a journey just to get here. Will you tell me please, what's life about? Life?
0: Wow, I thought you were the one to sort of answer those questions. I mean, you have to realize I'm an investigative journalist, right? I mean, my brain is focused on those hard to get facts that big, powerful interests don't want us to kind of know about. So life for me in a working form is about finding ways to and pry loose those facts to to tell some significant story about the world that we didn't know before um so when i think about my working life um that's what it is
1: okay and your recent your most recent book hooked food free will and how the food giants exploit our addictions the incredible book it just released this week the week we're recording this which was march 2nd 2021 but I'm really interested to know, who did you write this book for and what did you want it to do for them? Why did you write it? I wanted to write it for people who
0: were starting to think about their eating habits, starting to try to maybe change their eating habits for the better, <clears throat> finding that to be difficult and not knowing why. People who were reading the labels of these processed food products, which are basically occupying 90% of the grocery store um and maybe seeing the salt sugar fat on there but also not seeing some other things that were interfering with their ability their free will if if you if you if you will to kind of make decisions about trying to change what they value in food and so my hope was to explain to people all the things that are in these products that um that are causing trouble for them. Mm
1: -hmm. Something I read you tweeted, uh, it really surprised me, but then I reflected on it and it didn't surprise me all that much. You said, uh, starting hooked five years ago. So you've been working on this book for five years, (laughs) which is amazing. (laughs) You tweet no way. I would say fast food and groceries were as addictive as heroin. And here I am knowing from very smart people that in some ways they're worse. Is that true?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I still cringe a little bit inside when I <clears throat> compare Twinkies with or Lunchables or potato chips or what have you to to cocaine or heroin. Um, and I came full circle. In fact, this book started with a question from an interviewer. It was a British tabloid TV reporter who was taking me to task for leaving, having the audacity to leave some hope in the minds of the readers of the last book. Because being a journalist, I'm, I'm of the mind that knowledge is, is empowering, mm-hmm. and even more so knowledge of what these food companies are doing to get us not just to like their products, but to want more and more. But he goes, Michael, how can you say that? Because isn't this stuff you're writing about as addictive as drugs? And if that's true, where is the possibility of free will on our part in that? And I'm like backpedaling on TV and hemming and hawing. You know, the, the, the addiction is such a harsh word and, and the images that that and the images we have of drug addicts and junkies is so vivid still in our heads um, that um, I couldn't answer the question, but, but I wanted to um and i found that to be really really interesting you know is that at all true and 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 if it is i mean what you know not only are there comparisons to be made but are there lessons to be learned from how we've dealt with or tried to deal with cigarettes and alcohol and and narcotics for dealing with this huge part of so many of our lives now this sort of processed food industry
1: yeah, and of course, one of the big differences is that we need food. <laughs> we need food to live, right? That so. is one
0: of the ways that food is more problematic than drugs. If you are a drug habit, by and large, you're going to be coached and helped, hopefully, to deal with that through abstention, cold turkey, you know, avoiding doing everything you possibly can to avoid contact with that drug or people who are selling that drug to you, right? We can't do that with food. You can't stop eating. And even if you're, say, isolating one part of the processed food world, like sugar, it's still so extremely difficult to walk into a grocery store or a restaurant and look for products that don't have sugar in them. And I met people who, a single grain of sugar will cause them to lose control. And, and and so the difficulty they're facing in trying to regain control of their food seems to be in, in that way more problematic than than a drug addiction.
1: Uh, you know, I learned so much from this book, and it caused me to think about a number of things I'd never really thought about before, or I thought I knew, but I didn't when, in, when I went to look at it a little more closely. And one of those is the, the term addiction itself, right? And you open my eyes to this idea that there are differences between what is an addiction and what is simply habit forming and what is a dependency and what is a compulsion and what is an obsession and when does something become a disorder, right? And one of the things you say that really resonated with me, I might be misquoting you a bit here, but that we all have disordered eating to some degree, right? Or we're all faced, we're certainly all faced with this challenge. But what, what did you learn that surprised you? Or how do you now think about these terms, addiction and habit and disorder and all of that?
0: Yeah, I spent the, the first chapter looking at the definition of addiction, because one of the One of the defenses of the processed food industry was how can you call us addictive? There's no real withdrawal symptoms with, you know, even a sugar, you know, lover or an increasing need for, you know, the tolerance, increasing need for, there's no evidence of that.
1: Those people don't know my wife, by the way. (laughs) (laughs)
0: You know, so it turns out that the definition of addiction has changed over the years um, because the more we knew about drugs, the more we realized that that even drugs don't all have those criteria that used to be sort of part of the formal definition of addiction. And, And a light really went on in my reporting head when in the year 2000, the head of the largest tobacco company in the world, Philip Morris, which had spent decades vehemently denying that smoking was addictive and then suddenly completely turned around and said, you're right, it's addictive. The CEO was asked in a legal proceeding what his definition of addiction was. And he goes, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to And the reason that was eye-opening to me is that at the time, Philip Morris was also the largest manufacturer of processed food in North America through its acquisition of the old company General Foods, Kraft, Nabisco, which makes Oreo cookies. And that definition, you know, fits perfectly, you know, many of our reactions to their food products in the grocery store and in restaurants as much as it does to to cigarettes. So that opened up that part of the world to me and certainly made it much more plausible to look at food as addictive using that very real and, and understandable sort of definition. The Other thing about addiction though, that it does happen on a spectrum and that's one of the things I learned from looking and talking to experts on drug addiction, right? You've got, at one end, you can have binge eating, you can have sort of total out of control eating disorders. And the other end, you can have, maybe just like a nagging feeling that something's not right with your eating habits, or it's taking too much effort on your part to stay in control of your eating, or or you just miss the, you know, the beauty in the rituals of having a home-cooked meal with your family be- you know, before we fell so hard for these convenience foods. And the very disturbing thing about that spectrum is that we can be in one end one moment and on the other end the next moment. That can change over our lifetime. It can change over the course of the day. And the real thing that got me going in this book too is realizing that that's true with drug addicts, too, and smokers and, and people who drink alcohol. There are casual smokers. There are casual drinkers. There are people who can use heroin casually without losing control, um, which I thought was, again, a totally fascinating, irrelevant parallel to comparing uh, drugs to food.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. If I had heard that from anyone other than a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, I don't know that I would have believed it honestly.
0: Mm, well, I also heard it from from people in the tobacco industry. And I was I was struck when I when I sat down and met the former general counsel, the chief top lawyer for Philip Morris, who told me about his smoking habit, if you will. He started smoking when he went to work for the company, but he only smoked in meetings. And through the course of the day, he might only have one or two cigarettes, put his pack away, never feel any temptation or urge to smoke outside of the office or any other time of the day. But he said, and remember, Philip Morris has another giant brand out there right now, not just Marlboro cigarettes, but Oreo cookies they were making. He said, I can't go near a bag of Oreo cookies for fear of losing control and eating the entire bag, I mean, I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, these are experts on addiction, you know, yeah. explaining to us how, in fact, for them, him, certainly um, the food can be far more problematic from a control standpoint than, than yeah. even smoking, which is one of the more addictive substances in the world.
1: Yeah, that, that is remarkable. <laughs> and the one of the challenges you point out about how the cues that we're exposed to, you know, whether it's through advertising or in the physical, you know, locations, our workspaces, our homes, the grocery stores. And you shared something in the book that I thought was really remarkable about the research that, um, Anna Rose Childress, this clinician researcher in Philadelphia did with drug addicts, seeing how they responded to these cues. Yes. Will you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So, So memory is a really important part of addiction. Um, The more we do something, the more we sort of deepen our habit, the more we're apt to kind of respond to cues or things out in the world that signal and and prepare us to expect and want whatever that substance is that we're imbibing. And she, she found in looking at people through brain scans that, you know, The tiniest fraction of a second cue, a picture of, you know, um, a a crack cocaine vial spliced in between bugolic scenes of nature um, could be enough to sort of light up the brains of of people addicted to that substance, crack cocaine in this case. just that mere flash of an instance, and she she that she called it the the moment of of desire and she she first was the first person to express to me that the brain could be divided into two parts one is our most primitive instinct part, which she calls the go brain, which is the part of the brain that gets us to do stuff, whether it's to flee from danger or to eat um, or to have sex to procreate or basic sort of functions and then there's the stop brain which is you know which is the frontal cortex generally the thinking part of the brain where we have what psychologists call executive function willpower and the balance between these two parts of the brain is what we're talking about here when when you're in control of your habits, no matter what they are, that stop part of the brain is, is there with the go brain, sort of helping to modulate, moderate the sort of impulsive decisions that the go brain has. And when you're not, when you're out of control, when cravings are hitting you so hard and so fast, um, the go brain is sending you running before the stop brain even catches on to, to, to what's happening.
1: Yeah. And to see that these scenes, as you said, were spliced in these images, these beautiful images for as little as thirty-three ths of a second, well below the conscious level of awareness. Yeah. yeah but nevertheless, yeah. it triggered this go brain, as you say, and that while that was done with drug addicts, that we're all subject to that when it comes to food.
0: Yeah. And not only sort of the images too. I mean, <clears throat> Speed is a hallmark of drug addiction. Researchers found out the faster the substance can get into your system and hit the brain with the signals, the harder you, the more apt you are, the harder you're going to fall for that substance and be lured to it and, and want it and want more. And there's nothing faster in that sense than food in the way it gets to the brain and it's because of a little trickery it, it does so <clears throat> people did this test it's been some years now but they sat some people down and they said we want you to push this button when you taste something sweet on your tongue so the researchers put a little dab of sugar on their tongue and in less than really about eight hundredths, or rather eight tenths of a second They were pushing that button, having recognized the sweet taste. And what's happening is, and this is another way that food is more troublesome than drugs, is our body was designed to attract us to food. And so it created this nervous system where the sugar doesn't go to your brain right away. It hits the taste bud, which sends a signal to the brain. And that goes so fast. in the way you know and it goes incredibly fast, faster than smoking can take as long as ten seconds to arouse the brain, some drugs are sort of somewhere somewhere in between and I realized that you know not only is food and you know sugar and things like that faster, but these groceries we 're talking about, and this restaurant food we 're talking about is fast i mean fast food suddenly sort of took on this new connotation for me and when you look at the processed food industry, everything about it is fast. Um, you know, they came up with a way of making cheese in a day. They called it milk in, cheese out. The entire manufacturing process is speeded up. That's to reduce the cost of the food, but they also perfected this whole business of snack foods, which all about, are all about eating quickly, mindlessly, between meals um, to where now, on average, Americans are getting a quarter of their calories in the entire day through snacking. Yeah, okay. um, and that's speed. You're in there? I'm in there, for sure. What's your snack?
1: You know, I really like right now those Lenny and Larry cookies that have protein added. And Ooh. of course, you talk about that, how food manufacturers Ooh. have got on this protein craze. and Yeah, yeah. But they're about four hundred and sixty calories and little almond milk, and I love those
0: you know i 'm a big snacker too I have to say i mean i i'm i 'm I'm, I'm doing some training these days so i 'm burning a lot of calories, but it depends what you snack on but the you know the issue is of course is that they 're making all these snacks and they 're so seductive that you know a lot of our cupboards resemble vending machines and so if you 're snacking on a lot of junk, empty calories. That, that becomes problematic,
1: yeah well, and you you mention in the book that it 's become socially acceptable to eat anything anywhere at any time, and that 's the kind of thing that I think many of us probably never really think about, but that hit me years ago when I was an exchange student in Japan, and I was conducting my American habit of that of just eating on the street and i didn 't understand why I was getting such strange looks until right. a, a Um, a Japanese student explained to me, like, Hey, we don't do that here.
0: (laughs) People in France think we're insane to snack. I mean, why would you do something that would at all diminish? the appeal of food you know in kind of one of the most wonderful moments of the day when you sit down to to have a meal with family or friends i mean it's you it, know i think it's absolutely crazy but yeah there seems to be this this moment one researcher suggested to me in the 80s when suddenly it became socially acceptable to eat anything anywhere and that's when you started seeing people eat going down the street and in the business meetings and, you know, and in between meals and, and the food industry jumped on that, you know, creating for us the perfect sort of mindless snackable handheld food that we could, we could indulge that snacking as much as we wanted.
1: Yeah. I'm thinking now, of course, of gogurt, as you point <laughs> out. Yeah.
0: Right. 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 In the little tubes, you don't yeah. need a spoon. Look, I mean, I'm laughing, but look, there are kids who grow up without using utensils because they're, they're eating at fast food from fast food restaurants and fast food in the grocery store that doesn't require,
1: you know, a fork and a spoon. So in this book, uh, and by the way, some of this, what manufacturers are doing, I was, I was surprised to learn. Never again, never really thought about it, that this this food industry that we're talking about, manufactured fast food industry, have I got this right, is a $1.5 trillion industry.
0: If you include restaurant food, which is the, the kind that's sort of heavily
1: processed. So massive business, and some people call it big food, you know, which of course calls to mind big pharma, big tobacco, maybe implies perhaps a little insidiousness and so forth. And I tend to look for the best in, in people and and think, you know, it's not... That anybody's got you know it's there's no illuminati you know plotting to exploit you know the the masses maybe there is i don't think so but instead that they're merely capitalizing on our innate tendencies And in the book you quote um an evolutionary like a biologist who says right that nothing in in science what is this nothing in in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution yes right and the only reason i bring that up here is to say It had never occurred to me that what's happening is this evolutionary process, perhaps, of it's more energy for less effort. That's what every organism has done, right? So (laughs) we're just now seeing maybe the extreme forms or the unhealthy forms of that. But how do you see that? How do you think about it?
0: So there was a moment when I almost gave up the book project, and it was when a scientist named Dana Small, who loves evolutionary biology so much, she named her child Darwin. Wow. Um, she's a neuroscientist. Um, she was the first person to figure out a way to look at the brain on food, because normally you slide somebody into a brain scanner, an fMRI, well, all the time, you have to remain perfectly still. You can't be like chewing your favorite potato chips, it'll blur the, the imagery. But Dana being a self-described chocoholic realized she could put squares of chocolate on people's mouths and they could sit there very, lie there very still. And that chocolate would melt and go to their brains and she could sort of watch and see what happens. But what she did was not just feed squares of chocolate to her subjects and look at the go part of the brain. She kept feeding them squares and feeding them squares and asking how they felt. And they went from, you know, loving it, to basically raising their hands and saying, you know, you feed me another square, I'm gonna like throw up all over your machine, nice machine here. And I'm going like, wait wait a minute, are you telling me the same addictive food can be incredibly alluring and revolting without any change to that? I mean, I've spent my last 10 years, you know, tormenting the processed food industry. Now you're telling me addiction is really on us in our brain, which was so well, you know, as an investigative journalist, I'm going like, oops, (laughs) but but what it did was open up this entire world to me is that, yes, you know some of this is on us and, and, and the real brilliance of the industry is that they're using our own basic instincts that draw us to food um, against us. And it was, it was Dana Small who also said, as I quoted in the book, which is that it's not, it's not so much that we're addicted to food, it's that we're drawn to food by, by our nature and the food companies have changed the nature of that food.
1: That mm. is remarkable. And does do you think it boils down? Is it as simple as profit? I mean, is that why there's 60 forms of sugar in foods now that didn't used to be sweet?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I still don't. Even even after these two books, 10 years now of crawling through, you know, the underbelly of this industry, I still I still don't want to see them as this evil empire that intentionally set out to 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 make us ill or overly dependent on their products. These are companies doing what all companies want to do, which is to make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. Well, I say all companies, but obviously it's not all. Um, by making that product as attractive as possible. And I remember the head of Coca-Cola, who became, you know, a terrific source of mine for for salt sugar fat, the first book, explained to me that, you know, when you're When you're in the throes of the battle with the competitor for space on the grocery store shelf or space in our stomachs, you're not thinking about life and these big questions and anything but beating that competitor. And so even the people inside the industry became really good sources of mind because when they stepped away, then they could sort of reflect back on their life work and many of them have come to have misgivings about their their life books work. So not only do I do I not see the industry as a whole as this outwardly evil thing, but the people making these products and selling them themselves, some of them are terrific people and they're just not, they're not just not sort of paying attention to this. Or they try mm-hmm. and fail within 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 the company. Um that's, you know, and, and I think that's an important thing to think of going forward, because now the question becomes, you know, to what extent if any can these companies what can they play any meaningful role going forward in helping us to change what we value in food and, and regain control of our eating habits and and i and i think the thing to remember is that these are not philanthropies these are companies and i don't think we can be expecting them to do anything that's going to affect their their bottom line.
1: Yeah, that's capitalism, right there for sure. Well, I know your book is more of an exploration than it is, uh, much more of an exploration than any kind of prescriptive thing. It's not a lifestyle guide. It's not a diet book, you know, or anything like that. But I am curious, what what can we do as individuals? How in, in the face of this one point five trillion dollar industry, how do we live?
0: Yeah, I mean, you uh, know. I think it depends on your circumstances um, and kind of where you are in that spectrum of of dealing with food. I mean, I I met people who had incredible success losing lots of weight, but then the nightmare began and their entire body was rebelling and trying to put that weight back on. And they just have, I mean, they are like drug addicts. They cannot go near the foods that trigger those responses. And this one gentleman six or seven years later, and he's still, it, you know, he's got his menu written out on the refrigerator shopping list. He has a picture of himself when he was 360 pounds to remind him. Every hour of every day, he's still wor- he still has to work on staying in control. I mean, that's kind of the extreme end. Um, and then on the other end, it's maybe somebody who just gets tripped up by food at 3 p.m. in the afternoon when they get a craving for What was the brand cookies you liked?
1: Larry and Lenny's.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the lessons from looking at drug addiction is that for those maybe less problematic kind of cravings that come on episodically at one point in the day, one of the things I've I've learned from from kind of the drug recovering addicts and experts in it is that you know, it's not just knowledge that you need. Not just knowing that those things are tripping up. You need more than that, and you need to plan ahead. Um, you, um, if, if it's a three p.m. craving at two fifty-five, you probably need to be doing whatever alternative. You know, whatever you know system you have in place to sort of deal with that. Whether it's to get up and stretch, or call a friend, or have have another kind of food, like a handful of, of nuts, to because if you wait for the craving to come on, again, the thinking part of your brain is in no way going yeah, to. You're
1: in but, but,
0: but I think the bigger thing too, that, that maybe will be you know more interesting for your for your listeners is that I think it's gonna require us to change what we value in food. Um, so that when we go into a Starbucks or we used to go into a Starbucks and you see the pastry cabinet and, you know, we're looking at that from ooh, how that's going to taste right now versus how is that going to work for me next summer when I put on a bathing suit or 10 years down the road when I get an echocardiogram in my heart and see how my health is. That's all about sort of changing how we value food and what we think about when we eat and 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 trying to find ways for us to make those decisions and not rely on the food companies to tell us what we value. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And part of that sounds to me like that centuries old millennia now dictum, know thyself, right? No. Like you said, if that 3 PM craving comes on or you have a tendency in a certain place to do a certain thing, just set yourself up to win. Some mm-hmm. of that sounds easy, but it's a, it's a process. I know pretty much all of life is a process. Um, Okay. Yeah, there's so much more that I want to ask and explore with you, but let me ask you, what haven't we talked about that's in this book that either surprised you or is something you think is most important for people to know, or you just enjoy talking about? What haven't we discussed yet?
0: We haven't talked about body fat. So so this was a real eye-opener to me, and it gets to the whole question of free will, and it gets to my own kind of instinctual bias before I started this research was to look at somebody who was really heavy and I couldn't help myself, but to think where's your executive function, where's willpower, where's personal responsibility in that. But here's what happens when you gain weight. I had no idea that, and again, remember we're designed to put on weight, body fat, for most of our existence was a really great thing. It enabled our brains to grow. It enabled us to get through hard times, famines, droughts. It enabled um, us to have more babies, which of course is what natural selection is all about. Um, And it's only in the last 50 years that that body fat has become the, the public health problem that, that, that it is. I mean, we're up 42% obesity now for, for adults in this clinical obesity for, in, in this country and, and, and close to that and others. Um, so, it turns out that body fat is a living, thinking organ that communicates with other parts of the body. Send signals back and forth. And its sole mission in life is to defend itself from any effort on your part to shrink it. So if you go into diet mode and try to eat less food, reduce the calorie intake, your body fat will send a signal to the brain that you are hungry, where before it wouldn't have done that. And not only that, but it will send signals to the rest of your body to slow down your metabolism. So you're burning less energy. So you're gonna to have to eat half as much as food as you were before in order to sort of even stay at the same level, right? But here's the other thing that happens is that um, fabulous researcher out in Oregon named Eric Stice was the first person to discover that body fat can also make us more sensitive to the cues, to the advertising from the food industry. He followed people um, as they grew older, putting them into um, brain scan machines and watch their reaction to looking at pictures of their favorite food and then getting a taste of say, you know, a luscious chocolate milkshake on their tongues, much like the chocolate melting that Dana did. And he saw that as those people in the group that was aging gained weight, they became much more sensitive to just seeing the food, tasting the food than they were before they gained weight. So the body fat was actually making them more vulnerable to food, who knew? And so when you go back to the question of free will and our, our own kind of personal responsibility, I don't have free will to control what my body fat is like screaming at my brain to do. That was for me a, a turning point in my understanding about how incredibly difficult it is to to try to lose weight once you've gained too much and to deal with the change your habits after a lifetime of, of 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 habits that you don't want to have anymore. Um You know, we're, we're, our whole body's engaged in that, not just our, our conscious brain.
1: Yeah. That part really surprised me too. The whole exploration of fat and about the, you included a sentence in there or so maybe a little more about the participants on the biggest loser, for example, who Mm -hmm. lost weight and then didn't eat any more, but gained it back. And I'd always thought that fat was that simple equation of calories in, calories out. Yeah. And, I, and your book changed my thinking on it's not that simple. And I, ne- I had no idea, like you're saying, that fat itself was an organ that was basically in its own self-preservation mode.
0: And that's one of the things that drives me crazy about this whole area, too, and even more broadly about sort of science There are so many questions we still don't know about food and about processed food. I mean, I mentioned the researcher that, uh, well, did I mention? So it was just two years ago, a researcher at the NIH did this clinical study where he was able to show that a diet of ultra processed food in a randomized trial with two groups of people caused them to gain weight. Obesity started climbing in 1980. This is almost 50 years later when somebody finally has the wherewithal to look at that question. Can we really say ultra-processed food causes weight gain? But there are many other questions about processed food that we don't know the answer to. Liquids, there's some sense that we by nature, by evolution are not very well equipped to detect calories and deal metabolically with liquids. So look at the big surge in soda drinking that we had, also sort of parallel to the track of obesity, but nobody's done the studies, in part because the companies, to some extent, a large extent, control the science and control the regulators that might be funding. That's the biggest frustration for me as a journalist, is like, where's the science? Where's the truth here? And who's actually trying to get at these questions that are important to us not the questions that are important to the companies.
1: Yeah. Some of those studies you, you included in the book about some of the ridiculous findings <laughs> that the companies have found. Yeah. It's laughable. Yeah.
0: When they do studies, they're looking for like a little thing to put on the front of the package. You know, like, cereal cereals going to make your kids smarter and get, you know, A's on their test kind of thing.
1: Yeah. That was remarkable. Um, Okay. So, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. You ready? I am. Okay. Again, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim, for the most part, is to ask the question and stand aside. Okay. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a...
0: Uh, a rose unfolding in the summertime and that smell and that beauty and that, that promise of, of, of a future
1: question. Number three, this one might be a stretch, but please go with me here. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: Ooh, everything. I don't wear slogans on shirts, but what would the one slogan be? Be thyself. That's such a cliche, but it's the first thing that comes to mind. So I'll go with that.
1: Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Ah, so I tend to focus on books relating to my research. So this is going to have to be This is going to have to be, you know, in the field of evolution and food and the book I've been talking to people the most about. Let me get the title exact for you um, and I'll even hold it up. It's the story of the human body by Daniel Lieberman, a (laughs) professor at Harvard. He's a paleoanthropologist he was the first person who pressed upon me that we, by nature, are fat creatures and so much of what the companies are doing is tapping into that nature. So I love, um, you know, and I I love these paleoanthropologists too because they don't have a lot to go on. They're looking at bones and teeth because they're, they're, they're bones. But there's nothing else left when they're looking at, you know, our forebears who died 2 million years ago. And they're, they're having to sort of draw from that stories. And to some extent, they, they have kind of a license to tell stories, of course, based on, based on the facts that they know them. But, but I, I, I love that world of trying to figure out who we were and where we came from and how we changed Over the over the eons.
1: Yeah. You know, that it it is remarkable to me to think that there have been, you know, we have ancestors that have been eating for at least four million years and how that has changed. And by the way, just to blow up my own lightning round for a moment, to go back to the conversation about obesity, one of the eye-opening things I took away from your book was about how historically when we ate, we would feel this feeling of fullness if we were able to achieve it because of the the water or the Fiber, right? And we would get the sense like, "Hey, your belly is full. Quit eating." But today, when we're eating a high, like a high concentration of processed foods, by the time we feel that same full feeling, it's like we've way overdone it, right? Like that. Yeah, was there used to be a
0: rule person. of thumb of like twenty minutes. It sort of takes your takes your stomach twenty minutes to sort of catch up to your eating, um, which becomes problematic when you're talking about these calorically dense products that have tons of calories in a sort of small amount where the stomach may never may never catch
1: up yeah and you mentioned somewhere in the book about like in the 1930s there was concern in the united states about we're not getting enough nutrients we're just not getting enough we're not eating enough food we're not eating enough food with the nutrients and now we're eating too much food we're still not getting the nutrients but it's not because we're not getting enough it's just because we're eating the wrong ones
0: Right. People call it sort of undernutrition. You can overeat and still and still undernutrify yourself if you if you will because a huge problem in people don't have enough money to sort of go shopping for for real food. Um they're getting calories but they're not getting everything else that their body needs to thrive.
1: Yeah. The, these things, I, I, again, I think while, and what you point to, is so important to recognize, you know, the economic realities that some of us face, it's not just hey, whole foods and go to these aisles and so forth. It's not always that easy for people, but at the same time, when we don't even have the awareness of it, right, we're not likely to be able to eat healthily or intelligently or whatever. And, and that's part of what I appreciate about your work is the awareness that it's opened up for me
0: and even when we are aware look there are there are mothers <clears throat> who take their family to McDonald's to eat dinner because it's the only place they can afford and get their family together to sit down at the table they know it's not good for their health but they know it's incredibly good for their other parts of their lives and their family cohesion and the and the, the power you get from 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 dining as a, as a family. So just imagine that situation of, of being, feeling, you know, forced to eat there for the, for the benefits of dining um, with your, with your, with your kids and your, your spouse. <sighs> yeah.
1: All right. So thanks for that diversion here. I come back to the lightning round. The question number five, this is the good old days when we traveled, <laughs> but I recognize in your life you've traveled a lot What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Um, When I'm on a plane, I always turn to
0: the person next to me. I haven't flown during the pandemic yet, but this is before. And, And ask them if they're from the place I'm going. And I'll ask them for two eating recommendations. I'll say like, what's the what's the fanciest place to eat in the town or country you're from? And also like, what's like the cheapest great food that I should look for as well. Um, and I would, you know, I would certainly go for the cheap food, but when I could afford it myself and I would also sort of seek out the fancy place. So it was, I would also always ask advice about food because you can tell so much about people in the country and from, from what they eat and how they, and how they look at food.
1: Oh, for sure. That's fun. Thanks for that. Yes. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Uh,
0: stopped doing, started doing. Ah, so I'm training to climb mountains, believe it or not. I just turned 65. It's not like a traditional bucket list because I used to do that when I was older. So it's more like reverting back to my, my younger days. Um, and I and I don't even want to go into my training regimen because it'll seem totally crazy. But but I'm noticing. I mean, I'm actually more fit now than I have been in a in a in a long time. And I'm 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 noticing that exercise, even if it's just walking or doing a couple of pushups, um, is so good for you as you age. Um, your balance, your view of, the, of life, your your eating habits. Um, look, hopefully, we've all learned now that you can't jog off junk food; it just doesn't work that way. But it can change your mind and the value that you put into the food. So, so me right now, especially in the pandemic, because it's been one thing I could focus on, um, is. Exercise and sort of training my body to to get back into the shape I was years and years ago has been um, has been really fun and terrific.
1: That is so awesome. what What mountains are you training to climb?
0: Oh my gosh! So believe it or not, when I was in my twenties, I was on Mount Everest when it was still cool to climb Mount Everest. I was a journalist. I didn't get to the top, but I did get to Camp Three, which is about a little shy of 24,000 feet. And I stopped climbing for a while and I did some other kind of adventurous sports. But but recently I did a little rock climbing with my 16-year-old and then my oldest who's in college now. We went to Kilimanjaro, which is sort of more of a hike, but that was so much fun. So somewhere I got the idea of climbing What's considered to be one of the coldest mountains in the world, it's Denali in Alaska. It's only 20,000 feet or so, but um, but we're 22, I think. Um, I should know, I better know it's in two months. Um, but the 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 latitude right is is it's so far north of the equator that you know when people have climbed it in the winter and have seen wind chills of 140 degrees below zero, so it's kind of crazy cold. And you also the reason I'm training is that there are no Sherpas on Denali. You don't get help from porters carrying your stuff. You have to carry all your stuff up and down the mountain many times as you try to progress to the top. So that, and I also want to go back
1: to the Himalayas and see some places I didn't see before. That is awesome. (laughs) Denali sounds amazing. You can see the Northern Lights from there, right? Oh yeah. Well, you can
0: see those from ground level too. You don't have to go climbing to see those, but yeah, I mean... Alaska's kind of in my family. My sister, older sister was born in Fairbanks, you know, under the northern lights. So, so it's been a place that I go back to for wilderness and for, you know, just, just that, that incredible feeling of, of being out there.
1: That's great. Um, And I really admire and acknowledge you for that. I know before we started the recording and even in my invitation letter for this podcast, I shared with you that my dad died at 64 years old, which when I was a late teen, I thought 30 was old. And now that I'm, you know, past 40, (laughs) I don't think 60 sounds old at all. And I love that, you know, you're now older than my dad was when he passed and you're active and healthy. So that's fantastic. I'm
0: so sorry for that loss. And, 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 and the thing is, I'm not, I'm not doing it to live longer. I'm just doing it to enjoy you know, the, well, how many years I have left. Better so.
1: Great. Well, good. Uh, okay. Um, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Hmm.
0: Um. So I'm going to stick to food. Oh gosh, it's such a cliche now because that's all I've been I've been writing about. Um. Um. I wish they knew that. They do have the power to change what they value. Um, it may not be easy. There's going to be huge. Well, I, I I wish they knew that they they should have the right to be able to change what they value because so many of us can't um, because of our life circumstances. But I but I wish that they knew that yes, the playing field for them should be level um, as it is for for others Um, and that that should be a God given right is the, is the, is the chance to sort of make your own decisions and make your own way through, through the world. Does that, does that that make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for that. Okay. Question number eight, coming down the stretch. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work.
0: Oh boy. Um, You know, it's, it's, being there for people when they need you um, is something I always haven't always been good at. But I think that that fundamentally is where you really deepen a relationship with people. And it's almost like pain and suffering has, that's one good aspect of it because it it has the, has the, the offers the opportunity to sort of deepen a relationship with somebody else. And I, and when I do manage to be there for somebody else, even when it's difficult for me to to do that, I'm doing something else, and and I have to break away and spend time with them. It's so rewarding, and it and it just it just changes the dynamics of that relationship. So, so it's like you almost want to be looking for those opportunities where where you can step in and just offer a hand. Beautiful.
1: Okay. And the last question here is about money. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you always do with it or you never do with it?
0: Oh, I think the only good financial decision I ever made was to like buy a house 20 years ago, which just has naturally appreciated. I mean, literally I'm like the worst. I never balanced my checkbook. you know, I was fortunate in being able to live within my means and not have debt, which is a, oh, a huge burden Good. on so many people. So I feel incredibly lucky in that in that regard. Um, but 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 yeah, from just a stupid practical thing, it was like owning a little real estate just happened to be like. Where I am in Brooklyn, New York, just sort of happened to be. That said, I have no intention of selling this house, and so it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of this obscure thing. As much, you know, it doesn't really matter what the house is worth because I'm we're not going anywhere either. So, hmm. but it, but it sort of gave me that security, and I, I can totally get it of the the draw towards sort of home ownership that 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 we have is
1: American dream right there. exactly. Part of it anyway. That's great. Okay. And if people want to learn more from you, so after this, by the way, I do have a few questions about writing and creativity, but before we get to that, and to make sure I ask this, if people want to learn more from you, or they want to connect with you, assuming you're okay with them doing so, what would you have them do?
0: Um, I would have them not call, but send an electronic note, email. I mean, I'm on social media. Um, I have a website where they can communicate. I think that's kind of the best way because the thing about email is I can look at it when kind of the time is right. You know, it's like a phone call is great, and it can lead to a phone conversation and or an in person conversation. But but email is really kind of the, the the I think the easiest for everybody.
1: Awesome. And people can find that on mossbooks.us is your website link to the email address there. And then as you said, you're on Twitter, you're on LinkedIn.
0: I would love to hear from your audience.
1: Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And as as an expression of gratitude to you, Michael, for making time to share your experience and your wisdom with me and everyone listening, I've gone on kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I've made a $100 micro loan. To a group of women entrepreneurs who are in Senegal, it's a group of eight women who grow rice, and they will use this money to lease a field by fertilizer and then pay for other related expenses. So thank you for giving me a reason oh, to make.
0: Fantastic! You know, I went on Kiva not long after they were formed. It's been a few years and donated to a woman who was making peanut butter. I think it was peanut butter, something like that, um, as as her business. And I thought that's just like the most fantastic thing. And it's a, it's a food, it's healthy if you, if you don't have allergies. And, um, I loved, I love that organization and their, their ability to get money to places where it's being used effectively. And can a hundred dollars can change a life in, in oh, those places.
1: I know I often think about, so thank
0: you so much for that.
1: No, it's my, it's my pleasure. And I know for the price of a tank of gas or a meal eating out, you know, that this makes a significant difference for others. And, and I love that it's not charity, meaning there's no strings. There's no, somebody, nobody's coming in saying, here's what you've got to do. It's trusting their own wisdom and and ability and yes. then make it happen. Yes. So, awesome. Okay. So the last few questions I have for you, as I said, deal with writing, creative process, Uh, I want to start with this question. Um, When did you first know yourself as a writer? When did you first know you were a writer?
0: Um, Kind of when I
1: figured out it would
0: be hard to do anything else. I I went to a competitive high school in San Francisco. I'm not quite sure how I got in. But... um, I did have a class in English slash journalism <clears throat> and um, she was kind of teaching us like what reporters do. And we had to go out and with a little notepad and pen and take some notes and come back and kind of write that up into like a news story, which I didn't really know it was. But she came over to me, this teacher, and said to me simply, hey, Michael, I think you have a knack for this. And it, that was kind of one of the kindest things any of my you know my chemistry teacher shouldn't say that to say that to me so by pure chance you know of of having that positive feedback in in that area i kind of go okay well maybe i should look at this and then and then i realized people would pay you money to wander around the world meeting people and asking questions and you would have to pay the price by the sweat and blood when it actually came to writing. That's you know that knowledge down, but um, that's when I really got hooked on being a journalist. Um, was realizing, wow, that's a great job.
1: Wow. So it sounds like this teacher had a huge impact in your development as a as a as a writer. Who else has been influential, and and how? What have you learned from from others?
0: Every newspaper I worked at. There would be like an editor who would who would teach me. Um, other writers. Um, when I worked at a small newspaper, I used to I used to look at the big newspapers and try to diagram the stories that they wrote to kind of figure out like the reporting method and how they did it. Um, and when I really got crazy, I would take my own stories after they were published in the small paper and try to make them better, edit them kind of myself. So so the editing process of writing is is huge. Whether you're your own editor or you're finding people better than you who can who can edit your work and, and boy, that was certainly true with the last book I read. I had not one but I had three editors at Random House. Wow helping me with hooked in their own sort of ways. Yes. Um, so that's been, that's been the ongoing huge part of, of my ability to write.
1: I just want to point out maybe for those who don't have as much experience with writing, this is nothing to say about Michael's ability as a writer, but instead I think it's a very high compliment that this publisher would devote three editors to, to Yeah, well.
0: Uh, yeah, part of it was I uh, took so long. You mentioned five years, right? So one of my editors, in the time where I was trying to f- still figure out the narrative arc and 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 where I'm putting the knife into these companies, she conceived, had, and partly <laughs> raised a kid, right? So so she left to do that. Um, then another editor, and then a, a second editor for kind of these big picture. But you know, they would say, <clears throat> they would say everything from Michael find another word here, or, you know, this metaphor is awesome. really not working, dig deeper too. these two chapters, I think we can pretty much throw these away, <laughs> two chapters, you know, are you kidding me? Yeah, so they are, um, they're the best. And going into writing books, I actually didn't, you know, a lot of writers, it's difficult because publishing houses being Profitable companies don't always have the resources to help writers with 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 good editing. And so so I've been really lucky in in, in that sense. Um, and, and fortunate to have good editors, brilliant editors, and also also the attention from from them.
1: What what a blessing. What have you learned about knowing when to trust yourself versus when to rely on an editor's input? Like when they say, hey, these two chapters or this word or anything else. How do you know when to hold firm and when to give in, so to speak? I almost always give in and defer.
0: I have picked very few fights with editors over the year. I mean, I just think that they know what they're doing. I mean, that's, you know, they're they're professionals. They have lots of experience. Um, And that's just kind of my nature to think that people with more experience than me are looking at it from another perspective. That's the thing about editing is that they're looking at this from another perspective that I've probably lost touch with. And one of my greatest challenges in writing a book like this that has a gazillion facts and heavy science is that I'll get lost in the weeds and I'll forget that people don't know what a calorie is. and so editors are brilliant as, at, at being able to know when to drill in and explain, or when to focus in on a, on a moment to yeah. tell the narrative, and when to sort of pull back and do the big picture thing. Um, and I, you know, it's not that they're smarter than me, but it's, it's they're, they're looking at this with a fresh set of eyes, and that's invaluable. And I, I almost always defer to their judgment.
1: Mm-hmm. How did, you, how did you think about including your own voice, right? Because I loved hearing the little, little insertions about what you ate as a kid, whether it was Pop-Tarts and Kool-Aid or whether your mom told you to take 20 minutes and let your stomach you know, catch up with your brain or whatever. But obviously, it's not written in a first-person like travelogue or anything like that. But you could have easily left yourself out. In fact, some teachers say... I is the worst word you can use in writing mm. and so forth. But how did you navigate, or how did you think about including yourself in the book?
0: Um, I also am trained not to put myself in stories and the I word that's changing in journalism now and in, in places like the New York Times, especially the New York Times Magazine, it's all I, 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 first person. I think they think it's a way of connecting to the reader. And, and maybe part of that is connecting. I think I just found that those, and I don't think there are many, but kind of those few situations, I understood that moment so deeply that my own experience was kind of just the best way of telling him. And when when I went into that Kellogg's factory in Battle Creek, Michigan, and they were experimenting with a a new Pop-Tart recipe that failed and they were dumping the Pop-Tart dough into the bin and that aroma wafted across the factory floor and went into my brain and immediately took me back 50 years when I was a latchkey kid coming home from elementary school and having Pop-Tarts. You know, I could probably get that same kind of story from interviewing, uh, you know, a hundred people, but. I felt that myself. And so frankly, it was a little easier to sort of tell it through my own sense, but I think also also and maybe just a little bit of, of a way of connecting to to the reader too, and sort of saying, hey, we're all in this together. Yeah,
1: I, I enjoyed that uh, and appreciate it. And I love hearing you talk about it now, just saying, look, it, I thought it would, basically I thought it would serve the reader best not you know, to do it this yeah. way. And yeah. ultimately, you. you know, in a big way, that's what this is about, right? right. The yes. reader. So you mentioned going into that factory and this is one of the delights for me of reading your work is that you do have access that many of us will never have. And I'm curious to know, like earlier in this conversation, you mentioned that attorney at Philip Morris or your source, I think you called him is at Coca-Cola, the head of Coca-Cola at one time, and so forth. How have you established, nurtured, maintained this quality kind of relationship with people that allows you to write about the things you write about with such authority?
0: Um, So I I I think that's actually a fundamental aspect of journalism, especially sort of investigative journalism, is that it's it's incumbent upon us to do everything we can to sort of understand where the person we're writing about is coming from, to step in their shoes. My parents used to tell me that, look, if you're being critical of somebody, step in their shoes for a second and look at the world as they're looking at it. Um, And so I would go into these interviews with these people who were inventing and marketing these products Of course with a boatload of internal documents that that showed me a lot about what they were doing and that probably in large part convinced them to talk to me but also but also with an attitude of not being there to torture them and to, to judge them but to really kind of understand where they're coming from and i think they could tell that i think they could sense and 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 um and it's incredibly fair, and, and it's a great way of going, but it's also very effective. They're, 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 someone's much more apt to open up and tell you secrets if they think you're sincere and wanting to spend the time to sort of understand the context of, of that. And, and, and with these people, you know... The context was for many of them, they had invented these products in a more innocent era. <clears throat> you know, the 60s, 70s, when we we considered things like Lunchables to be a tr- occasional treat and not an everyday thing. And <clears throat> and they could sort of defend themselves in that regard too, that the system got out of control when they, you know. <clears throat> um, but um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just having that natural empathy um, that I do as a person, but also as a as a journalist and just wanting to understand rather than immediately judge somebody.
1: Yeah, that that's powerful. What what habits and routines do you have when it comes to writing? Is there anything for you that is like a non negotiable? You start writing at a certain time, have a certain word count in any session, wear a certain set of slippers or anything like <laughs> what, what habits and routines do you follow?
0: Um well I have um a whiteboard the next book is up there so I can I can't go focus in on it but it's it's I'm starting to think about the next book and I'm starting to write words and I make lists and I go like what are the big themes what are the base notes notes in this this book that I want to pursue and why why would people be interested in reading it so So I keep a white book or or notepads where I just like write lists of things and ideas as I I gather them. Um, I'm a morning person, so I always get up and write in the morning when I'm still, um, when my brain is still really fresh. And for both of these books, typically what I would do is I would write in the morning and then report in the afternoon, gather more facts um, for the next day's writing. And then in the evening, organize the day's work. So I'm ready just to kind of sit down and let the creative juices run. And my other favorite thing to do is um, when I go running and when I can run in the morning instead of, of writing, um, it's so great because whatever problem I was working on the evening before the day before, just that, that act of getting oxygen to the brain and sort of clearing my head, I'll find that the problem will sort of solve itself or I'll think of that word that was missing or the phrasing. And in fact, I often, you know, I started carrying like a phone with notes in it so I could write it down so I wouldn't forget that that, um, before the end of the run. So, So, that act of stepping up and walking away and clearing your head and then coming back, whether you're going running or exercise or just whatever, I think is, is, really, is really important. And lastly, not to belabor the point, but one of the best pieces of advice I've heard from writers give students, people new to writing is, um, you know that the writer's block, we often, when we're starting out a project, that first sentence, can be so intimidating, right? Because you know, you know, brilliant authors, right? You know, we look at those first sentences and go, "Oh wow, how did they do that?" It's no way I'm going to do that. So, this advice came from a former colleague of mine at the New York Times, and she she said and she was a real writer. I mean, I'm more of a reporter than I am a writer, but she she goes, "You know, you just have to let that first sentence be ugly." Don't try to make it perfect. Just put it down on paper, you know, relax, take a big breath, write the next sentence. You'll come back and make it beautiful and powerful and as good as you can, but just get it down and don't worry, it will be ugly. It's ugly for all of us. Um, So yeah, be comfortable with that ugliness of that first sentence. And I think that was like really great. Really great advice.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think so. And the coach in me thinks there's like a metaphor there for life as well, right? Just about mm. acceptance and self-compassion and, and all of that. Yeah. Yeah, we're all work in progress and all that. So that's great. I
0: have trouble with that self-compassion. You know, I'm also learning that to play the cello. I've been at it for two years now. If I knew how hard it was going into it, there was like no way I would have started. It was the hardest. It's harder than journalism. Harder than raising a family. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done because you've got this, you know, part of it's the bow, and there's the fingers on the on the on the strings. There's no like guidance for that. You have to, you're building, you're building memory tracks to try to remember this and then the flow. And professional cellists who have been at it all their lives are still learning. There's like no end to. And it's really hard to beat yourself up and go, my Gosh, I've two years now and I'm still like, ah, hitting so many bad notes. And, and I'm learning from my fellow uh, cello players that self-compassion is really, really important. Yeah. So I'm learning, I'm trying to learn how to be a little more compassionate
1: with my own, <laughs> with my own self. What prompted you to pick up a cello?
0: Uh, my, my youngest son, Will, who's 16, has been playing the violin since he was in the first grade. And I thought, wow, what a cool thing it would be to play some stuff together, you yeah, know, cello, violin. <clears throat> and of course, he was a little younger when I started, and now he's like a full-blown teenager. And there's like no way he's going to play with his father. But down the road, you know, I'm sure, you know, he'll get older and, and uh, yeah, we'll have that moment. <laughs>
1: awesome. Are there any tools or technology that you have come to rely on, whether, you know, something like Evernote, um, you know, Scrivener, anything Trello, any apps or software or good old fashioned analog, you know, tools that you, that you rely on as a writer?
0: Biggest tool is a thesaurus. I moved from like a hard copy thesaurus to the online version but you know, I, I work on a simple word program, mostly on my laptop. You know, worrying about body posture more than kind of anything in terms of the effect that can have on your on your on your fingers and your wrists. And, um, but yeah, no. Um, well, the biggest tool, of course, as a reporter is or search engines. I mean, it's unbelievable what you can find. Um, you know, in search engines, the salt, sugar, fat opens with this meeting of the heads of the largest food companies in the world getting together almost like mafia dons to privately discuss their culpability in obesity and diabetes. And this is way back in 1999. I first saw some notes on that meeting through a Google search. It just popped up out of nowhere, which took me into this public, but totally unknown archive of inside documents within the companies. It's just kind of staggering too much to me, how much as a journalist, how much is sort of out there. If you know what you're looking for, and and, and that's one of the things and started a new book. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking for the language of the subject that I'm writing about. I'm looking for those technical words because the problem with a Google search is like what do you search for but knowing the language that say food executives use and talking to one or another privately will help you sort of narrow down that search and get into the world and find those luscious documents that are out there so yeah search engines would be my biggest
1: tool awesome. you probably know all kinds of filters and special techniques to just extract the most from those search engines, I'll bet. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What okay, so the last last questions here. What when it comes to writing or creativity have we not talked about? And I I understand by the way that you are or have been a professor of journalism or writing, at least an adjunct as yeah. Right?
0: So so I mentioned I consider myself more as a as a reporter than a writer. And sort of what does that mean? I mean I <clears throat> I think there is absolutely no way I could sit down and write a novel because, well, unless it was a fully reported novel, I mean, for, for pleasure, I read crime novels um, and, and those authors sometimes will spend huge amounts of time reporting out the facts, but then they'll creatively turn it into the, 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 the fiction. Um, I mean, I see them as like, I mean, and real writers as writers. Um, I mean, I have to accumulate a mass of powerful, surprising facts in order to be able to write. And then the writing just kind of takes care of itself. I'm just telling a story with these facts. Um, And the narrative arc kind of takes care of itself too. Um, So I don't think of myself as a writer. So yes, for 10 years, I was an adjunct at, at the journalism school at Columbia teaching reporters how students how to become reporters. So it was basic stuff. Here's a notepad. Here's a pen. Go out and find me a story kind of thing.
1: That's pretty cool. What advice or encouragement do you give those who are either currently in the process of writing a book or it's a dream they've been harboring and haven't yet really taken the steps to do it? What do you what advice or encouragement do you give those who have uh, want to write their own book?
0: um so so with the students my thought was always that one of the most powerful things you can bring to journalism is curiosity and um if you have curiosity about something um you're you're halfway home to to being a really good journalist and and maybe that's sort of true with writers too but but if you're at the point where you have an idea you've already passed that threshold you've been curious about something um Uh, enough to allow it to sort of affect you in kind of in kind of a deep in a deep way um i'm a very practical person i think about journalism in terms of reaching a fairly large number of people um and so i will always ask like what's the story i want to tell here what's the publishers talk about the elevator pitch if you're in an elevator with the person at Random House who has the big bag of money to pay authors to write, what are you going to say to them in the time it takes you to sort of go up and down the elevator on the floor? You know, what's that? What's, what would you say to your mother if you called her up on the phone about this book you want to write? What's the, what's the real essence of that? Um, And I think that would be, that would be my first advice is think hard about what that would, be and sort of get that fixed in your in your head as as a starting point um and you know ask yourself is this that an idea that that people would want to read and you may be a writer who doesn't care about having a big audience and writing a book for five people is incredibly honorable great thing to do if you can and so 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 don't get me wrong you don't have to adopt my sort of method but for me i'm looking for ideas that mean a lot to a lot of people and and could potentially level the playing field in their, in their lives. Um, but it's, it's focusing in on what, what do I want to say with this? What do I want to say with this book? What do I want? What do I want people to take away more than anything?
1: All right. Well, thank you for that. Okay. Well, is there anything related to writing or creativity? I know we didn't we didn't explore really into marketing and promotion or publishing per se. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? Just I know you've learned so much in your years on all these topics. Are um, there anything final things that we didn't talk about that you think might be a contribution to our listeners?
0: Everybody, I mean, this is this is just a cliche, but you know, <clears throat> as a journalist, what you do when you're first starting out, you read everything. I mean, you have to know, especially an investigative reporter, you have to know what's been written. Um in part to just because you can't repeat that, but also to find really good sources who maybe have talked to or are willing to sort of talk to talk to journalists. And I, I you know that's gotta be true for somebody who's writing fiction or non fiction, right? It's just you have to be a reader and 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 I know with my own kids, we were all about encouraging our kids. I read to both of my boys when they were still in the womb on the notion that, you know, they would pop out, you know, being curious about books. And indeed, as kids that, you know, as they grew up, I mean, I would like, you know, they'd be going to, to, to bed and I'd lie down next to them and we'd be reading, you know, a Lord of the Rings or something. And, and, and uh, I would fall asleep before they would, of course, but just that connection of, of reading and getting them excited, and that's what you want to do with yourself too. Of course, is keep that excitement going by reading by reading other people's work. Yeah, that's awesome.
1: I wish my dad had done that with me, or climbed an alley with me, Oh <laughs> or played <his> a string <laughs> instrument with me. But I'm, I'm I really acknowledge you for that as well. What a gift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we are at the end of our time, and again, I've enjoyed this so much. I love. Hooked. i learned so much from it there's things that i'm telling all my friends about it i've included oh, it in my you. weekly email um i'll leave my google review it's my amazon review today i'm gonna be mm. the second i think so mm. five stars but oh, thank, uh, thank you, you so Michael. much
0: thank you i really i really enjoyed this I, I love what you're doing um yeah. I mean, you're making a difference in people's lives, which is just fabulous. So I'm so glad we got to meet and talk.
1: Yeah, me too. And thanks for being a part of it. I'm really grateful for that. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever, No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.